really yeah. is, you get Excellent. so used to seeing your mirror image that when you see your mirror image reflected hmm. which I think you can really only do on a, it's like a hard computer. to do not on a, a computer, computer yeah, yeah. Computer thing. yeah. And it's it's not a pleasant. I, I think like doesn't like Hangouts do that when you video conference? I it think. might, which is because I feel like when I leaned this way, like leaned it goes this the, way, yeah. With, yeah, or it goes the other way. Because I don't know, you can put on like the hats or something. Yeah, yeah. I, don't yeah. Know. The, yeah. I always have to have a mustache. <laughs> I can't see myself unless I have a um, mustache, I just, a monocle. <laughs> I'm just all about like the uh, having the rim shot, so I can tell a joke. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So uh, the Apple Watch, I've been wearing it for 48 hours at this point, I guess. Um, it arrives Tuesday. I actually took an Uber from the office back to my house to get it because I was too impatient. You were that excited. I was that excited. I was really excited. Can't, yeah. I can't blame you. I, uh, yeah, well, it was good. It delivered early. Um, it was supposed to ship three to five weeks after, I, or three to five weeks from like May 1st, I think was the date. Um, but it ended up shipping like really quick, um, and uh, it arrived on Tuesday. And I really, I really do like it. Um, the battery life is so much better than everyone was predicting. Um, I've unplugged it since like six in the morning uh, today, and it is at like sixty percent right now. Um, so it can, I think it could last like a full twenty-four hours, but we'll see. Um, Did you load the Uber app onto it and call the Uber <laughs> from your watch to get back to the office? No, no, I wish <laughs> I took I took the subway um, like a schmuck, but. Uh, it uh no I I really like it 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 it's definitely a little like the apps are a little gimmicky still um I think people are kind of trying to figure it out um, Marco Arment wrote that really interesting post about how he like retailered his um his Overcast app actually after he had a watch because he realized you just use it in a totally different way um, and before that most devs were using like the simulator so they really had no idea like what it meant to kind of have something on your wrist that you could like interact with. Um, so like the Overcast app is great. You can you know see what's going on. You can ch uh, change the podcast and see what's coming up next and stuff like that. Um, and uh, but other than that, I, I just really like it as um, it gives me like really good notifications on my wrist. Um, I, I I barely pull my phone out of my pocket when I'm sitting at my desk because I can either reply to a text message or see you know what notification is happening. So like my phone battery is just doing great because <laughs> I never mm. turn on the screen. So how do you reply to a message on the phone? It's like a you you have like a canned. List yeah. of messages that you can reply with. Yeah, and it also it hooks into the uh, predictive text model that iOS has, so it can usually kind of guess what I want to say, um, or you can load it with like predetermined phrases, which I've just put like thumbs up emoji and thumbs down emoji and you know, things like that, which is normally kind of what I say anyway. What about the high five? Yeah, the two hands, hands up, like, yeah, or, like, like the blessed hands yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, so I, I load it with all these like stupid canned phrases, but. Um, for the most part, it's like you know, it's great. I I think I'm I'm excited for what they can do once they um, enable like the apps natively on the watch because um, it'll give like the developers a bit more power um, when it comes to like actually doing calculations and stuff on the watch. Because right now, everything is loading its data from the actual like phone. So yeah, basically, it's just like a dumb display terminal, basically. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's like it's basically just a view, and it's getting all the data back and forth over Bluetooth. So there's definitely a little bit of lag when you're like 
swiping through screens or kind of like doing actions on the phone. Um, it doesn't feel like it's laggy, but I, I mean, like knowing how it works, I can kind of tell like, oh, like that's why that's spinning, you know, that loader is spinning around for a minute before I see anything. Um, but yeah, other than that, I just, um, I think also it's just like a nice piece of jewelry. Like I'm not, I wasn't crazy about the square face. I would have preferred a round face, I think, but like, um, yeah, it fits nicely and it, uh, it's cool. So. Do you mind if I hold it just no, to see yeah, what the weight is like? So that's the that's the thirty eight uh, millimeter, which is the smaller size. I, I have kind of small wrists. They don't really say it, but I think that they call it the female one. Really? <laughs> well, when I when I went to the store and we we went to the store together to try to fit them, the the um, advisor who was sizing them on she she just like was using the forty two inch one. I was like, oh, like I see the thirty eight one. She's like, oh, that's the female one. Oh, really? Well, it fits better, so. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I don't like the big one. Don't tell one. anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I it would look stupid on my wrist if I used the bigger one. Just kind yeah, of. probably it's like you know, like when you try to move your wrist up, it like you know, yeah. No, I agree. Stuff. I would get the smaller one too, just because yeah. the fit would be better. Yeah. I think we yeah. we actually I think my wrists are as small as yours, Chris, really? and uh, yeah, yeah we're, oh we're smaller. God. Yeah. Uh, but I wear a huge watch normally. I'm just used to it. Yeah, you're also six foot something too, so it makes it. Easy. But it's apparently <laughs> it doesn't affect it the doesn't size matter. of my wrist apparently. <laughs> no, but uh, but yeah, like so I know I, I I like the uh, all the fitness stuff with it too. Um, it tracks your heart rate every ten minutes for like the entire day whenever you're wearing it, um, which is kind of cool. Um, the only thing that they don't really have much um, around like sleep statistics yet because I think they. Um, at least Apple makes the assumption that you are going to take it off when you go to sleep because it needs to charge pretty much every day. Um, so I, I don't know, like, I think, like, that leaves um, some room for, like, some third-party apps to do something cool with, like, sleep because it, it actually charges so fast that you could probably, you know, sleep overnight with it on, get all the cool statistics, and then, you know, while the next morning while you're in the shower, it'll charge back up to, like, 100%, so... How long have you seen it take to get back up to 100% when um, you charged it? I, I haven't done it from zero up to 100%, um, but going from like uh, 50, I think it was at last night, um, it was at it was at 90 by the time I went to bed about like 30 to 40 minutes later. So oh, wow. like, yeah, it goes really quick. Um, I think it's just because the battery is not really that small. big. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't, it barely uses any power, I guess. Um, also, I don't have an iPhone 6, but I get uh, Apple Pay with this now, which is really cool. Um, I paid for my cab and for my, um, my uh, like, I got, like, snacks at Dwayne Reed and just, like, held my wrist up to it. Or, oh, I didn't even awesome. realize that, that yeah. with the, I, the, the 5S, you didn't have it because the NFC, but this has it. With yeah. the software on the 5 and the NFC on the watch, it gives you Apple Pay. I didn't even realize that. So I can't that. even, yeah, I, I had that. to add Apple Pay from the Apple Watch app because, like, my version of Passbook doesn't even have, like, Apple Pay built in or whatever. Um, but you just kind of, like, double tap and then your card will, co will come up and it'll activate, like, the RFID chip in it and stuff like that. Um, and you just hold it up and then it goes, which is kind of cool. That is very um, cool. So um, I guess I'm experiencing Apple Pay about, what, like eight months after everyone else did? But it's I, cool. I just <laughs> used it for the first time. I just finally went somewhere oh, with it. Yeah. Six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have still never paid for anything with Apple Pay. <laughs> and I, I bought the Six partly so that I could pay with Apple Pay, what, like a year ago? So. Yeah, last fall it came out. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I bought it a year ago so that I could start using Apple Pay. Someone said that you don't get like credit card points when you pay you, with yeah, Apple you Pay. Do. You, you do. do. Okay. You do. It, it's as if you just swiped it. And it's, the well, they, they the use same. they use a DPAN. Yeah. Right. It's not a regular. It's not a PAN. They don't they don't transmit your credit card number. Yeah. Okay. But it still ends up on your statement the same yeah. way as any other transaction, and that does it say the same way. Does it say like Apple on your statement, or will it say like Dwayne Reed? It says like Dwayne Reed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dwayne. yeah, it says like that. Yeah, yeah. no. Categorized the exact same as the merchant anyway. Otherwise, 
Who hands out? Is Apple the one handing out the DPAN, or are they working with the credit card company? They're working with the credit card company. What's like? What is DPAN? It's so. You know, you have an, let's say you have an American Express card, you yeah. have a credit card number. But American Express actually has the capability to hand out sort of randomly generated credit card numbers that okay. are one use or one merchant use. Okay. Um, so they, they know that that card is yours and it connects back to your account, uh, but it's, it's essentially unique, right. um, which has a lot of pretty obvious advantages. Yeah, okay. But but we said that Apple hands these out. No, I think, no, I think it's the, the credit. I think the yeah. credit card companies are doing. That's probably yeah. what they yeah. mean by like when they like onboard new banks or whatever. Sure. They have yeah. to write software that does that. that yeah. Makes sense. Okay. Very cool. But yeah, Apple pays. It was fun. It worked, and I didn't. You know, I didn't even have to get like fumble around with my wallet in the cab or whatever, and it was just kind of nice. But. Cool. Um, so the other voice that you have on the podcast today is a special guest we have, uh, Mr. Daniel Cowgill. Dan, Danny, I don't know. Who's let's let's go with Dan for the podcast. Dan. <laughs> it's shorter. Um, and we're really excited to have him here. Um, he is the CTO of Maple, a New York City-based uh, vertically integrated food delivery company. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's is a that pretty good okay. Yeah, that's the elevator pitch. Nice. Um, so, yeah, I... I um, I'm yeah, excited to have you here. If you want to give like kind of the extended pitch of what Maple does, because I think a lot of people have heard of like Seamless and stuff like that, but how are you guys different? You know, what are your advantages and things like that? And where have you launched most importantly? So I guess I'll start by just describing what Seamless is, and that's a good jump off point to describe how we're different. Mm-hmm. So what Seamless does is connects you, they connect you to other restaurants. They're basically a marketplace. So Seamless doesn't make the food, they just they, they fax your order, actually, for the most part, to restaurants. Yeah. Uh, when they started out, the, like, the most advanced technology we had was fax machines. And most restaurant technology is you know, still mired in the, in the early 90s. So uh, they all have fax machines. A lot of them don't have anything beyond that. And that's what Seamless does, which is why when you order from Seamless, they have this really sort of this funny message in the, uh, the checkout screen that says, hey, if you have any problems with the order, please don't hesitate to call the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, don't, Directly, don't yeah, talk yeah. to us. Yeah. Uh, so Maple's different in that we, we are the restaurant. We make the food, we um, you know, design all the recipes, and it's a restaurant without a, without a restaurant, so there's no physical location per se, uh, which means that, uh, for one thing, all of our food is focused on delivery. Um, in, from the point of in, you know, conception and R&D, to the actual uh, cooking of the food. Everything is geared specifically to, toward getting it um, to you delivered in, in a good state. And restaurants don't really focus on that. You know, they make food that is primarily designed to look good on the plate and, and make its way from the kitchen to the diner, which is you know 20 feet. Um, it's Food that will survive that journey won't necessarily survive a delivery journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one thing, and we also save a ton of margin by not having a front of the house. You know, no waiters, no decor, no ambiance. We don't have to worry about a very expensive storefront rents. We could put a distribution kitchen on the second floor. We can do it in a side street where there's no foot traffic. Mm-hmm. Restaurant, a restaurant would die. A traditional restaurant would die in that kind of location. But for us, it's perfect actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and we take all of that extra margin and we put it back into the the food. So we actually have. I think restaurants typically spend anywhere from like 20 to 30 percent of their cost of their margin, you know, the, the ticket price on the food. Uh, we actually spend a much higher percentage. It's closer to like 40 to 50 percent, uh, which means better ingredients, uh, fresher, you know, more locally sourced stuff. Um, and then another part of that margin just goes into the price. So it's actually a very, I think it's a much better price point than Seamless. Um, our price is all inclusive, so it includes tip and delivery. 
uh, and tax. So nice. what you see on the website is what you get charged, period. Wow. And we don't muck around with any of these you know, $9.99 type things. Mm-hmm. It's $12 for lunch per meal and $15 for dinner per meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just really, really simple. Um, and you know, our delivery guys don't even take tips. So it's just, you, you have two people, you get 30 bucks. Um, for me, when I order on Seamless, I'm lucky to get away just myself for $30. Right. You know, after I've hit the delivery minimum and then I've got an appetizer yep. and then there's the taxes and then you know, I, I maybe tip too much. I'm, I just like to tip delivery guys, but I tip a waiter that's right. just, you know, because it's a tough job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also delivery guys, they need tips to survive. Like that's a huge yeah. part of their income. Mm-hmm. It often accounts for half their income. Um, also, if the weather's crappy, right, you feel bad, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do, do you still order seamless? Uh, I, I do because <laughs> so so that gets to uh, Chris's uh, last question, which is where are we where are we servicing? Uh, right now, we're just delivering below Chamber Street mm-hmm. um, and the New York City, Manhattan, right? Yeah. Sorry for yeah. those <laughs> listeners. Who, <laughs> for the listeners who have the misfortune to not live in New York, uh, yeah, I was referring to the island of Manhattan, south of Chambers, which is. You know, maybe the bottom quarter of, of Manhattan, maybe the bottom third. Um, by population, I'd say at lunchtime, it's a significant part of the island. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the, it includes the financial district, um, which is a huge number of people coming in every day for lunch. Mm-hmm. And we've seen lunch being just absolutely, you know, bonkers in terms of demand. Like we have we have trouble keeping up. Wow. Um, and the reason we're, we're just focusing on that area is because we would just we want to get the formula right. We want to figure out the operational side mm-hmm. and make sure that it's a perfect experience um we'll edit this out <laughs> um so whatever matches <laughs> guys stop <audio. laughs> and we're back uh, we had some technical difficulties uh we had not to... with the podcast though no with uh <laughs> yeah at, at work we had to fix an outage but uh it looks like we're good we roll forward or did we roll back a little well, of both a little of both that's okay anyway so if you'd like to continue about sure. uh, <laughs> I was gonna make like a the site is down joke. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those videos. Okay, you no. obviously. <laughs> the website is down. It's like a YouTube thing from you guys don't know about it because it's re- well, Jeff, you're my age, but it's really old. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that definitely belongs in the show notes. Is um, it like a song like the website? No, no, it's 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 the adventures of of a, like a sysadmin who keeps getting called up that the website is down. Oh, okay. Things yeah. just get they progressively get worse. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. It's really good. good. Okay. Um, so we were talking about why we're only in FIDI, uh, which I don't... Okay, so now I don't remember what we were talking about. No, we, yeah, that yeah, was, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right about okay. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're, we're downtown, we're below Chamber Street. I don't know if we discussed the geography of what that means, but... Yeah, we did. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason for that is just to make sure that we get the experience really, really right. good. So starting um, small and kind of like... Yeah, because once we start opening... We call them hubs. These are our distribution kitchens. Um, I guess I should take a step back and explain like how the food gets made, like sure, yeah. how the sausage gets made. Um, <laughs> we have a re- we we built out a what we call a commissary. It's just a giant kitchen in Brooklyn. Um, it's a really really big space that has all these giant industrial sized ovens and rice cookers and things like that. So as much work as we can do at the commissary, we do, and then we truck the food every morning to our distribution kitchen. Um, and then whatever we have to do at the last minute, we do there. And everything is cooked to order, so all of the all the meat is cooked at the distribution hubs. Um, uh, but some things can be done, like a lot of prep work, a lot of chopping of vegetables and stuff mm-hmm. like that can be done at the commissary. Like the uh, sous chef stuff, kind of. Yeah, yeah like sous chef and prep cook stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's also where they do all the R and D. So they make mm. they make meals 
like a week ahead of time and they perfect them and test them over and over until they're ready. Do you get to try any of them before they're... Yeah, well, I used to. <laughs> used I used to be to. shared, right? Yeah, we used to, our old office was in a restaurant. Um, so I, I, my desk was like 10 feet from the kitchen, so I wow. tried everything. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> that was fun. It got, it got old fast for me. My, my waistline was not happy. Right. Um, so now, now we're, we've split the, like the tech team and, and, and the corporate stuff is in an office okay. and the commissary, they do their stuff out in Brooklyn. Right. Um, so what I was, what I was getting at was that we have these distribution hubs and, um, in theory, once we have figured it out, they're very replicatable. You know, they become mm -hmm. like a machine and we can just mm -hmm. stamp them out really quickly mm -hmm. and quite cheaply, actually. So cool. the goal is to get the experience really, really good and then hopefully expand very, very fast. Was Fidei like a strategic choice because of its proximity to Brooklyn? Like, or was it just kind of you know, you Yeah, honestly, it was just kind of random. Yeah. Um, it depended on where we could get a hub up and running really quickly mm -hmm. because we wanted to start, we wanted to launch as quickly as we could. Absolutely. Um, and it, you know, it, it fits some parameters that we liked. Cool. Um, it has good lunch and dinner density. Uh, is dinner density pretty good? Like, I feel like it's pretty empty at nighttime. Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, we thought, I, I expected it to be completely dead. Mm -hmm. And then I, I did a lot of research down there as part of all the GIS work we were doing and, and you know, geocoding and routing and things like that. And I found that there were actually a lot of huge apartment buildings down there. Mm -hmm. uh, there's actually an apartment building down there with 1,700 units, wow. which I was wow. shocked to hear, but somewhere in Battery Park. Uh, so I, after learning that, I thought dinner would be not dead. Um, and it's not dead, but it's probably 50% of lunch in terms yeah. of volume. Okay. Uh, so it's, it was somewhere in the middle of what, what we anticipated. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I imagine, you know, with obviously all the people working there, it, lunch would be crazy. Like you said, you could barely keep up at times. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. And the thing about the thing about um, this kind of a business is it's it's you have these peaks that are extremely high, mm -hmm. and then you have long periods of nothing. Right. You know, almost no one's ordering lunch at four p.m., and very few people ordering dinner at like ten forty-five. But we are open at those times. Mm -hmm. um, everybody orders lunch at the same time, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, which makes it, which is a challenge. It's a huge challenge. So I think that's kind of a good segue into like the like the technology behind it because like are 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 do you see like huge spikes at the website at the same time obviously you know when everyone's ordering and like do you do anything like interesting with how you handle the different load or something like that or well we do I mean okay. there's definitely if you look at our you know like our traffic graphs it's super concentrated at like 11.05 yeah because you um, can't you can't place an order you know before right. 11 a.m right so it, it is yeah. kind of like an instant service right yeah. it's kind of like uber right where, right. where you, you you place it and it's just now now it's going to happen yeah right. that's that's right. exactly right okay um and i know there are people on the website just like waiting because usually by 30 seconds after 11 a.m., we have 15 or 20 orders. Right. Um, so they're doing them all like in the first couple of seconds. Right. So they must be on the site just like watching it. Uh -huh. so, um, so like you have the web, you also have the apps for it. Yeah. Um, and do you have any sort of like stats on like are, are people mostly at your desks and you think in they're, they're doing it from their desks on their computers on the website or are they doing a lot from the apps? Like what? So this was actually an interesting finding. Um, it, it didn't match my expectations exactly. At lunch, it's like two-thirds web one-third uh, iPhone app mm -hmm. um, we have we have a we have a, a responsive website which you can use on a mobile device and we actually track whether you're in the mobile form factor or on desktop mm -hmm. and we have an Android native app that is mainly a web view that mm -hmm. wraps the responsive site mm -hmm. and then we have a native iPhone app mm -hmm. um, and so at lunch it's like two-thirds web desktop one-third iPhone 
and a tiny percentage of Android and web mobile. Mm, and, then at, and then at dinner, it's inverted. So dinner is two-thirds iPhone and one-third web. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Android is still always, always a sliver, though. Android is always a sliver. It's a, it's a few percentage points. Yeah. So, I mean, it's certainly enough that we want to maintain it, but yeah. not so yeah. much that it really shows up on the graphs. Um, I guess, like, everyone's kind of sitting on their couch, right? And they pull, hey, let's yeah. get some dinner, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's my theory. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I, I love using the app. It's so it's so convenient. You mm-hmm. just, it's like two taps, and you just it just feels very smooth. Yeah. Um, so I can see the attraction there. I, I just assume it's because people are at their desks during lunchtime working at their computers anyway at their computer anyway so for them it's very easy to just open up a tab and Mm -hmm. and check out Uh, but it's it's been quite consistent like two-thirds one-third ratio and then consistently almost like the exact opposite ratio at dinner Hmm. um yeah what about the a little bit more on the tech okay so that's the consumers it seems simple enough you have your, your your lunch or dinner options you only can order it during your open hours like can you talk to us a little bit about the behind the scenes after that person places their order? Yeah, um, sure. All the things that um, go into getting that, that food to them in like that 30-minute window? Yeah, so I'll describe the whole sort of fulfillment pipeline, as I call it. Uh, but Chris, Chris also brought up, he, you had a question about uh, do we see like a load spike and how do we, yeah, how yeah, do we deal with that? Uh, so, I mean, you have to put things in perspective, like the amount of traffic is very low. Right. Um, it, compared to stuff that I've had to do in the past, this is this is very low. But we run everything on like a couple of machines. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, while the traffic is low, the, the amount of stuff we have to throw at it is, is I think, equally very small. Mm-hmm. And we've been lucky because the technologies that we chose to build it on, I think, are you get a lot of efficiency for free. Mm-hmm. These are things that are very easy to make fast, particularly at low scale. Uh, like we use, so we use Go for the entire API uh, infrastructure, like all the, all the servers that respond to Go. And, um, you know, goes a fast language. You just get a, it's almost like a free order of magnitude over something that's like a dynamically typed uh, interpreted language like Python, PHP, Ruby, mm-hmm. which are, you know, very popular languages for implementing websites. Um, so, so just sort of for free out of the gate, we have this really fast uh, uh, language runtime. And then our data store, we use, we use MongoDB, mm-hmm. which... Um, you know, at scale, I actually think it has issues, but at low scale, Mongo is very, very responsive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's essentially an in-memory database. Uh, Mongo does not work if you have your working set on disk. It pretty much just dies. Um, but when your entire working set's in memory, uh, you know, it's, it's sub-millisecond response times, even for relatively complex queries that return right. a lot of data. Um, so we don't, I mean, I've noticed, like, there's no change in the load during the peak time, mm-hmm. um, which has been nice. Nice. Uh, but again, like not because of any sort of brilliant architectural decisions, right, it's just sort of like solid choices of, of implementation technologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you place an order. What happens? Um, so the first thing that happens is it's sent to the to the distribution hub, um, and they have a whole bunch of different applications that power things. Uh, and in fact, when we started, I I, saw, I envisioned that there'd be one app for mm-hmm. hub. Um, I should also state for the record that I have no idea what I'm doing. Right? <laughs> none like, of us do. None, yes, none of us do. <laughs> so I don't have any I don't have any restaurant experience aside from watching, you know, eleven seasons of Top Chef. Right. <laughs> and, which I reference constantly to the culinary team. Right. I'm like, look, this isn't how it works. <laughs> I've seen enough restaurant wars to know how a kitchen works, okay? Chef, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that, there's a lot of eye rolling when I start talking about my Top Chef experience. Um, I like to watch Bar Rescue. 
bar so, restaurant. Yeah, yeah, where the guy comes in and like underperforming restaurants yep. and then just like throws everything away, brings a guy in to redo everything and brings in a POS system. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, uh, I mean, that's sort of, that sounds similar to Kitchen Nightmares, which I've also yeah, watched a lot yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched the entire British run of Kitchen Nightmares. Oh, man. Um, not as preparation for this, but just I've I done that. You're, you're shouting at the culinary team. It's it's roll. This is roll. <laughs> I, I actually have I've like expedited. I've like run the hub, and I was totally channeling Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> it was like a dream moment yeah. where I could just start cursing at people, <laughs> scream like you know, trying to come up with clever ways of describing their horrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so so originally I thought there would be one app because again, I have no idea what I'm doing and and um, that turned very rapidly I discovered that that was not gonna not gonna be sufficient and now we we have you know five different applications that run in the kitchen um, as we've increasingly specialized people's roles so the first thing that happens is it goes into this sort of command and control application that gives you an overview of everything that's happening at the hub so you can see on one screen all of the orders that are coming in in real time from customers, and those go into, into a lane. Uh, and then there are lanes for each state stage of the fulfillment pipeline. So first thing that happens is they get confirmed, um, which means the kitchen is now notified that they have increasing demand for items to make. Um, and from the kitchen's point of view, they don't think about orders. They just see volume of the individual menu items that they have to cook. Mm -hmm. um, and then those are reassembled later into orders. Um, there's another lane for somebody to uh, bundle orders together into shipments and saying like these should go out together with a delivery guy and this is something that we've also automated mm -hmm. uh, so there's very little human decision making along this uh, as part of this process so those are now so once uh, once a, a, a shipment is identified which there are a whole lot of inputs into that making that decision as you can imagine it's mm -hmm. how old are these things are they going in the same general direction do I have delivery guys available um, how long until the next delivery guy returns to the hub? Yeah. Um, and how can I estimate that, right? So there's a lot of sort of uh, intelligence that has to go into that. Mm -hmm. um, is it a priority order? Was it a mistake that we're fixing? Uh, what about the types of food? Is it cold? Is it hot? How long can it sit? Can it sit at all? Does it have to be fired up, made to order? Oh, so, wow. yeah, so there's a huge amount of decision making that goes into that. And it's pretty tough for a human to do optimally. It's pretty hard for software to do yeah. optimally, too. <laughs> um, but we do the best that we can. So once a, once a shipment's identified, it gets moved to a packing station. And essentially what that says to the system is um, the system knows how much of every type of food is available. So it essentially has a demand and supply graph. Um, demand enters the kitchen and kitchen produces supply, which is moved over, over to basically a heating area. Um, and then you have a packing team and they have a, a new application that tells them, okay, there's a new shipment ready to be packed. And it prints receipts for them that they can attach to the bags tells them exactly how much of the food they need to get, pack it into what bags, and then they assemble that into what's called a hot bag, which is a large bag that can hold many different order bags. Um, they then close that, each one is a unique identifier. They scan it and they're like, I'm done. And then they just move on to the next bag and they just slide that bag down to the, mm. to the dispatching area. Oh, wow. And then our delivery guys, they just walk in the door and there's just a queue of bags. Mm. They just grab the next bag, scan it and walk out. And that transmits all the the transmits the contents of that bag as well as the route they should take and as soon as they scan it a new route is calculated based on the age of the things in the bag you know you know so it tells them just go to these buildings in this order you know follow these instructions wow. and then they so they have another app which is a native android app and we supply the phones to them and so it's all like a standard build and so that we can uh, update them all remotely mm -hmm. at once because mm -hmm. we have you know 70 or 80 of these phones it's like yeah. a huge pain to, to maintain that manually 
Um, so th those are those are native. You have somebody writing that in the native Java, or is that a web view? It's Java. It's, 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 yeah. yeah, it's a full yeah. native Java app. Um, you know, we thought about doing a web view, but it's relatively simple from a UI standpoint. Right. Most of the complexity is uh, involves dealing with the API, um, yeah. de dealing in particular with lack of connectivity, which is right. it's something we always have to be thinking about with this app. Yeah, and right. hard to do with a web view app. Yeah. Very, very yeah. hard to do. Yeah. yeah, so we can't have a situation where the delivery guy's in an elevator and he reloads the page, which is a web-only kind of concept, mm -hmm. and then it's just you know not available spend, um, yeah. because they, they lose connectivity in buildings all the time. Right. Um, so, so, for example, um, so I'll describe what the app does. The delivery guy is told where to go. He can see a map. Uh, that sort of leads him to the next destination. Mm -hmm. And before he goes anywhere, he just slides this little button across the screen which sends a notification to that customer that, you know, we're headed toward you. Oh, wow. And if there are other people in that building or at that location, they'll get notified as well. Nice. Um, because often a delivery guy will have maybe three or four bags to drop off. So we want to, we don't want to notify the customer like that the person's headed there unless he's really headed there. Because mm -hmm. he, he may have 15 minutes of journeying ahead of him. So we want to make it as close as possible to, to the to the drop, um, and then after he's deposited it in the customer's hands, you know, we, we train them to say, "Do not do this next step until it's actually in the customer's hands." They slide another button which says, "I've I've dropped it off," mm -hmm. um, and that beams back to the mothership. You know, all you know, the delivery was made, and that is visible in real time on a console and dashboards inside the hub. So the person managing it can see the state of all the delivery guys and, and the deliveries just get crossed off one after another mm -hmm. until they're done. Um, and we have, you know, GPS telemetry visible there. Mm -hmm. So we can see, you know, where the delivery guys are, yeah. where the where the deliveries that they have to make are in their in their shipment, mm -hmm. um, how many they've completed and so on. So that gives you sort of an overview of yeah. um, you know where they are, and there's various histograms. Yeah. Did you go Android for these for like cost reasons? Because you're gonna ideally so, believe it or not, um, we wrote two versions of this app. We actually did a native iOS version and Swift as well. Oh, interesting. Uh, and we had a web version. Okay. So oh, uh, wow. I, I built an initial prototype as a web version yeah. um, just to see if this made sense. And then we wrote an iOS and Android version because the original idea was we were going to let delivery guys use their own phones. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, we were going to have delivery guys use their own bikes, mm -hmm. which is standard operating procedure in New York City. So bike uh, Delivery guys and bike messengers always show up at their place of business with their own bike. Right. Um, and very often with their own phones if there's any kind of software that they mm -hmm. need. Although almost no restaurants do that. I'm, I'm not aware of any actually. Right. Um, they have it just to maybe call up but they yeah, can't get in kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So you need the phone because you, you call the restaurant and you're like, the customer's not coming down or the doorman won't let me up. And that happens you know, several dozen times yeah. just per, per night and per, mm -hmm. per lunch service. Uh, so, and what we found was this was a disaster. Right. Uh, guys would show up and their data plans would be off. Oh, their, God. Yeah, their, their phone would get cut off halfway through the mm -hmm. service, you know. Uh, they'd come and their batteries would be already red. Right. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> guys would show up and they wouldn't have a lock for their right. bike or their bike would have a flat. Um, so we scrapped all of that. We got rid of the iOS version and we decided, because we, we didn't want to maintain two if we didn't have to. Right, we were going to exactly. supply the device. We were going to supply the device. Yeah. We hunted around and we found these Android phones that cost uh, 30 bucks. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the data, the, the data plans are like $10 or $12 a month. Because you don't need like LTE in these things probably. Yeah, we, like, it's 4G, yeah. Um, which is perfectly good enough. There's yeah. almost no data being transmitted yeah. back and forth. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, they don't need to be fancy. No. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. just need to be sturdy. And, and reliable, which they are, yeah. and they have very, you know, they have great battery life because they have smaller screens. Mm -hmm. uh, so we we sort of, we redesigned the app to be really perfect for that device, 
And we did the same thing with the bikes. We went out and we, we you know, this is off topic of software technology. Yeah, yeah. But, no, no. Uh, yeah, we did. We designed our own bikes. We we went to a manufacturer and explained what we wanted, and Very cool. um, they built a whole bunch. So now, are they branded? No, they're they're sleek all black. Oh wow! Which, yeah. They're almost like matte black, which yeah. I'm very happy about because yeah. yeah. I think it's way cooler looking. Like, can I buy one? <laughs> yeah, I I think they look really cool. I, I'd want one myself. Yeah. Uh, and they're designed. You know, guys lose bikes and bikes get stolen. New York right. City is the yeah. bike theft capital of planet Earth. So, right. um, we're expecting these things to get stolen. We don't mm. want it to be a big, you know, heartache. We want the delivery guy to come back and just pick up a new bike. Right. Um, so anyway, back. To, sorry, I just went off topic there with no, the apps. But that, that actually was a good example of how much we had to iterate on these things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I alluded to this a second ago. We didn't even have a delivery app initially. Right. Uh, I wasn't sure how much sense that made. I thought maybe we'd give them the bags and they'd operate like a normal delivery guy does. Staple a map on it. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, or, or, like, yeah. or no map and they yeah. just figure it out, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and it turned out to not be nearly efficient enough. We couldn't hit the kind of volume we wanted without more software support in the hands of the delivery guy. Right. Uh, and there's also the whole, you know, notifying customers as things are happening. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and the third thing that turned out to be, is turning out to be important, is all the GPS telemetry they beam back to us as they, as they move around the city. Um, what we found is that all the existing mapping solutions are just, they don't really satisfy our use case. Um, but what we're doing is we're basically creating our own map of, of lower Manhattan mm -hmm. right now, like in real time. So yeah. uh, every second they, they beam telemetry back to us as they move around. Uh, we store all of that and we process it and analyze it. And with that information, we're able to do better, better routing. Yeah. Um, and there are things like the location of bike locks that no mapping system that's off the shelf is going to give you. Wow. But that oh, turns wow. out to be a huge factor in how long it takes a delivery guy to make a delivery. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they have to walk a, a block, you know, it's like 80 meters mm. uh, in order to lock up their bike, and then they have to walk that distance twice. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so those, those are things that, that are sort of peculiar you know, quirks to, to how this business operates. Absolutely. You guys could even like you could release some of this data like bike locks around the city at certain times. Right? Yeah. It's like an open source kind of thing. Like that's really interesting and fun, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we could do. Certainly, we could in a, in a few years we might be able to do as good a job as Google does of right. bike directions, <laughs> specifically for bike delivery guys who have to lock bikes. Right. I mean, yeah. That's that's, that's a, such a niche. That's case. another service, though, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, so so th I think that's that summarizes how the delivery pipeline works. And of course, in the kitchen we have dedicated apps in the kitchen, which have gone through, you know, several iterations themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, I, we're still figuring that part out. Um, one challenge in the kitchen is it's hard to get a device in there that does not going to melt on you. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the first day I went into our, our hub, I turned one of the ovens on uh, to 500 degrees and left it on for 30 minutes. Then I felt the front of it and it was cool to the touch. And I was like, great, I can... I can grab a little cage and I can put an iPad mini on the front of this mm -hmm. and I'll just uh, sort of Velcro it uh, and it's gonna work great. And I was really pleased with myself. <laughs> and I went in two days later and midway through one of the lunch services and the iPad was not on and I asked why and they said, oh, it just won't turn on. And I touch it and it burned my hand. <laughs> and I realized that something I hadn't anticipated, they had all the food underneath the oven. There's like sort of a heating area for prepped food yeah. and the heat, the amp, just the ambient heat of that, you know, from, from below, yeah, rising, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, basically melted the iPad. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's been a challenge to figure out, like, where can we even attach a device in the kitchen yeah. that makes sense? And, and what kind of information do cooks want to see? Right. Another thing I found is the cooks don't want to really interact with, a, with an app. So initially, I had them 
interacting a lot. They would claim, you know, tickets. So demand would come in and say, we need five, uh, five BLTs. Um, and he and the, the cook would, would acknowledge it and say, okay, I'm going to make five or I'm going to make 12 mm -hmm. because maybe he makes batches of 12 because he has to toast the bread and cook the, cook the bacon. Mm -hmm. um, and then when he's done, uh, somebody else would subtract those, those 12 that he made and indicate that they're now ready to be packed. And it's, it's crucial that the system understand this because if at any point in time our software doesn't know exactly how much supply of food is available, it can't make decisions about shipping and bundling. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it won't even send things to be packed. The packing station will just be idle because the software thinks, well, I can't possibly mm. ship a BLT if you haven't made it yet. Right. Um, so I actually noticed the cooks were taking gloves on and off every time they interacted with an iPad. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Because you have the gloves on, they yeah, can't do anything. Yeah, they right couldn't now. really, yeah, it was, it was giving them a hard time. Right. Um, so that was, you know, out the window. And the, the I guess the final detail that I think is interesting about the kitchen that I'll, that I'll share is that these guys don't complain. You know, this is not feedback I was getting back right. at the office. You just got to go watch, I guess. You right? have to yeah. go watch, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a military organization in there. Um, you know, these guys work so hard. And if things don't work, they really just take it. They deal with it, yeah. Yeah, they just deal with it. Wow. You know, they, they expect that's how it is, you uh -huh. know. Um, and this is unlike any restaurant or kitchen these guys have worked in. You know, they don't really use iPad minis and stuff. So right. I, was, I was amazed how quickly everybody in the kitchen takes this technology mm -hmm. um, and zero complaints. So you really have to go observe. You know, they're not like ordinary users or, who complain incessantly. Oh, whining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. whining. Or developers. Or developers, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if anything doesn't work, we complain very right, loudly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so what did you go with in the kitchen? Is it, did you go out to printing receipts and like the old like line? There's like a line of receipts going in there. They take it, take it down, they make it. And, uh, so the kitchen is all digital. They don't deal yeah, with any okay. paper at all. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it, that question right there indicates like you have the same sort of familiarity with the restaurant that I do. Right? Yeah. You, you're used yeah. to the ticketing thing where they go yeah, in they're, they're pushing. Yeah, they're pushing the yeah. sale tickets down. That's yeah, like exactly. old school. Yeah, like, so you know, they're not using the iPad. How are, they how are the cooks deciding, like, uh, this is what, how are they seeing what they're going to make and how are they acknowledging that it's done? Is that happening after they're done by some expediter, like, separately? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, what, what I've found is that the best thing to do is just give them information. So we mm -hmm. just try to surface as much information as possible. Mm -hmm. So they have a display that shows the current demand for any item uh, coming in from customers, how much they've made total over the course of the service, which is not something I thought they'd be interested in, but it turns out they're very interested in that mm -hmm. because they actually use that number sort of as a bellwether. Mm -hmm. um, how many are waiting at the finishing station? And that is defined as food that's been plated, it's ready to go, and it's under a heating lamp. Uh, and food can only stay there for a very short period of time before we don't want to sell it to somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and then they have some predictive analytics on how much has been coming in, how much is expected, how much stock is left on the website. So they know that at some point they're going to run out. Mm -hmm. um, and that stock is very closely mapped to what's actually available, like in our refrigerator and you know at their station. Um, and so, so what they basically get is an overview of really the decision they need to make at any point in time is should I keep cooking or should I slow, should I stop or slow? Right, right. It's really almost like a binary decision they need mm -hmm. to make. It's not. It, they're not uh, deciding to make three of a thing or one of a thing or twelve of a thing because when we're operating at full speed. They just need to cook at full speed. Right. Uh, they do trays of 12, trays of 15. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, everything's cooked to order, so there's no time to say, oh, there's one, somebody wants one chicken, one right. grilled chicken, so I'll throw a grilled chicken in there. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't work. You know, there's, they, need, they need an indication that there may be one grilled chicken order having just come in from the website, but there are going to be 15 more. Mm -hmm. um, so giving them those sort of predictive analytics 
um, has enabled them to make that decision really, really effectively. Oh, so so the, so there's not like a one to one of I ordered it, it's in line, it's gonna come, it's gonna get cooked by them, and then it's, it's gonna be they're gonna make a whole bunch. Yeah. And then the whoever's packing it is just gonna take the one, and we had at least enough that are just coming off the line in, in relation to the order that's kind of coming through and packs it and puts it through. So um, that's that takes away that line of tickets or something like that across yeah. the one because it's not right. one-to-one, but it's still to order because like your, your volume and how, how you're doing it just like um, lines up really well with that. Yeah, and that, it, you, that actually raises an, another really interesting point, which is not something I knew until kind of recently, is that um, in New York, it's a Department of Health Code violation to cook food that's not to order. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Um, I think there are exceptions, you know, like if you're operating a Burger King, you can make Whoppers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think you have to end it. You have to be able to establish that those Whoppers are being cooked uh, with enough certainty that they'll be used. Mm-hmm. You what know, about like, like buffets, though? So and buffet, yeah, they make yeah. exceptions for things yeah. like Sizzler or and for cold food. So yeah. And yeah. so that's why you can go into like a Witchcraft and they have all the sandwiches and salads pre-made. Right. Um, it's cold food. There are certain... You know, it's the Department of Health stuff. It's like Byzantine. Right. Yeah. Um, so we, obviously, we'd love to cook everything to order, um, but that's impossible if you're getting 200 orders in in 15 minutes. Right. So, uh, so we have to predict. Uh, and wow. So there are situations where if our, our analytics are wrong or we cook too many things, you know, there's some food waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and food waste is a reality for any restaurant. Right, yeah. Uh, we are trying to minimize it. I think one of the advantages of this business is we can have lower food waste mm-hmm. um, because, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, software-driven, like a heavily software-driven business. Something like a Chipotle is going to have extremely low food waste because they have such a predictable level of demand and they have such a predictable menu. For us, it's a little bit more challenging because, um, and this isn't something I mentioned during the, the little elevator pitch section, but we don't, we make something different every every meal service. Yeah. Every menu is unique. Um, we we have three different menu items per service, uh, which means six per day, which is 30 in a week, mm-hmm. or 120 unique items in a month, because mm-hmm. we're open Monday through Friday. Right. Um, so first of all, there's an enormous challenge of designing 120 different menu items. Um, Mm -hmm. But we also have a huge amount of metadata associated with every item. Um, How long does it take to cook? What are the different components of this thing? Um, In what order do those things get made? Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, there are things like cost associated with these. Um, So we try to to associate as much data as we can with each menu item, which involves a lot of upfront testing and R&D, so that we can make better decisions during an actual service. So uh, we know to a reasonable degree of accuracy, how many we can make over some time period. Mm-hmm. And those time periods are different. So mm. uh, a certain a certain menu item might have, you know, we make 50 every 15 minutes. And that's just because 15 minutes works for that particular item. Maybe it's cooking schedules fits into that. But another item might say something, it might be in an entirely different interval. We make five every three minutes. Mm-hmm. So it replenishes really fast, but at like a smaller, like a smaller amount. Uh, yield, yeah, yeah. yeah, so so yeah, it depends on things like yield. So we, yeah. we program that into the system before every service wow. so that we can temporarily stop orders coming in um, for certain items if demand is just so high that we can't we can't cope. Um, does does all this data play into what they pick for the menu each day, or is it more driven by like what you know, like a what a chef would want to create that day, or kind of like how, what's the balance with that? Well, that's that's a great question, and, and that's a balance that we have been moving. We have been moving in the direction of more data okay. and, and being smarter about the menus. Right. Uh, initially, it was just driven very much by what made sense from a culinary standpoint. Yeah. You know, it was like you wanted mm-hmm. 
contrasting and complementary dishes. Um, we always have a vegetarian option. So mm -hmm. one out of three is vegetarian. That's sort of non-negotiable. Um, but then the other two items is often driven by like what our chefs thought was cool. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot of great chefs and, you know, they make, they make amazing dishes, but uh, there's an entirely different set of concerns when you're trying to pump out hundreds of things right. in an hour. At scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah at yeah, scale. Yeah. So what we find is we can't, have a, we can't have a kitchen that's equally apportioned in terms of resources to different items. Um, it just wouldn't work. Right. Some items are harder to make than others. And for example, sandwiches and tacos are, are nightmares. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. yeah assembly is. Yeah, like, yeah, anything yeah, where yeah. assembly is required, they're really tough. And, and surviving a delivery trip as yeah. well. Oh, yeah. that, that as well. Yeah, 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 tacos in particular have been a challenge. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's been hit or miss, I'll say that. Um, so, I don't want to talk about it. Guys, we made it uh, 40 minutes. How yeah, long yeah, is it? About 40 minutes. Well done. Like that, yeah. you, held, you held it for 40 minutes. You must have been dying. Um, and we, we had one lunch where we did sandwiches and tacos together. Oh, God. And um, like our ops, like our, our ops team, they saw this menu and they were like, what, what are you thinking? But it was, it was too late. It was already live. And it, and it was a, you know, it was a really tough service. Uh, the, the term they use is they were in the weeds. That's like the restaurant yeah. term. Um, they say in the shit, but right, in the yeah. weeds. And they got in the weeds almost instantly. Right. I mean, it was an instantaneous yeah. deluge. We fell behind on, on like... Our demand, we have a little demand indicator, and we like it to not get too high, right? right? And it was just, it was hockey sticking, it wasn't, oh, wasn't no. moving. Um, and you, we had a guy who was making like, uh, you know, 1.2 sandwiches per minute, you know, and at that rate, we're, we're dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an example of how you have to really carefully craft your menu. Yeah. So we like to have an easy thing and a hard thing. Yeah. Uh, two hard things doesn't work crazy yeah what I think is yeah it's um what I think is interesting is this just seems like such a new experience for everybody involved like nobody has really done anything like this before and having to do the the kind of like the finesse and like but at scale is really really challenging and it, that's that's what that's what like you keep saying like you know like the chefs they originally were picking you know dishes that were you know tastes complement each other and then we realized like holy shit that won't work right like we got to pick based on the data which that that's that like from just hearing these stories is fascinating I think yeah yeah that's something that dawned on me actually quite recently how how you this is a, a unique um, model. Right. And there's there are no prototypes for us to look at. Nobody mm -hmm. else is, is really doing it. Um, we certainly have competitors in the space, but everybody has their own spin on it, and everybody's solving the problem in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, I would I would say the closest is Sprig and in San Francisco. Okay. So they have a very similar basic pitch, which is um, three different menu items every day, um, lunch and lunch and dinner. Uh, delivered to you very quickly. Mm -hmm. They actually, I think, have a, have a lower delivery promise than we do. It's like a 15 to 20 minutes. Oh, wow. We, we promise 30. Mm -hmm. um, but Sprig has, they solve the problem in, in different ways. Uh, one thing they do is search pricing. Oh, wow. Oh, interesting. Like yeah. Style. yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So they, yeah. they actually have a delivery fee that's not baked in. Right. So they have the price of the item and the delivery fee is separate. Mm -hmm. And the delivery fee varies. And at lunchtime, it's very high. Yeah. And they do that to smooth out demand. And the, the economist in me loves that. Uh, it's the perfect economic solution, right? You should use price discrimination to right. force people to pay more if they want it at a certain time. I think from a from a branding and customer experience standpoint, it's it, to me that's a tough sell. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll see if it works. Um, and the other thing they do is they they have the food with their drivers. So they have they have a team of drivers who drive around San Francisco with food already in the car. Oh, okay. interesting. And they dispatch yeah. directly to the driver. I think that's what Uber is. 
triangle. Yeah, Uber Eats. Yeah, 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 yeah it's a similar. Yeah, one similar. restaurant, one item. Yeah. If you want it, then they'll the, you you sign up for it and they'll bring you one of them. Right. Yeah. Um, so there are obvious advantages to that model, yeah. um, but there are just as obvious drawbacks. Right. There are certain kinds of uh, dishes that aren't going to fit into that model, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think it would work in New York at all due to the regulatory restrictions that we talked about before. Yeah. Um, you got or even like cars in New York like is not sure <laughs> yeah I mean, you know, like, I mean if, if anybody's seen like Flatbush Avenue in the middle of the day right. or certainly downtown New York like Fidei right uh, there's no driving no. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be on bikes and, right uh, I don't even want to know what it would look like to have a, a bike messenger with 40 <laughs> meals on it. I guess he'd be pulling a wagon of some kind <laughs> like the uh, the Casper bike delivery guys have that huge bike on the, uh, with a bike where they can fit their that big box on it and they'll, oh they'll drive yeah, you yeah, yeah they yeah. deliver Casper yeah, mattresses they by do. bike they do some of them do yeah that's and they amazing. have like this like tricycle sized bike <laughs> that they can fit this box on it a guy will ride a bike to your apartment with, with a mattress that's amazing only in New York <laughs> only in New York that's true imagine in San Francisco with somebody with that and trying oh, to go up the, the hills hill. on that. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like two weeks in your legs are just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm dreading the day that we have to take elevation into account of all with, for all of our routing algorithms. Right. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Yeah. Oh, that's that. We're lucky that New York's very flat. Um, yeah. And that you've got Muntry, which you know I think a lot of people have heard of. They're doing great, but they they serve cold food. You have to you have to cook it yourself. Mm. Um, again huge advantages to them. Yeah, totally. yeah. Um, and I think that they can probably control the quality of their food, you know, more easily. Um, we're just, we're going for a different experience. You know, we want it to be, you unbox it, it's ready to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, they're, the challenges are pretty steep to make that work. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, yeah, so everybody's got their spin on it. Um, I don't know of anybody who's doing it the way we're trying to do it. Uh, certainly the reactions I've gotten from like our general contractors and restaurant experts and all the people we've, we've worked with and brought in, they all say the same thing. They're like, I've never heard of anybody even attempting something like this before. Uh, they seem to think, you know, they're like, this is really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not, not so much in like a, you're insane. This isn't going to work kind of way, but like, uh, this is crazy. I'm really excited to, to try to build it out kind of way. So that's been, it's been nice how excited everybody that yeah. we've worked with is to, to see if it can work and try to try to build it out. Um, but it's it's new, uh, which is tough because we can't just copy. Right. I love like I love to copy things. If somebody else, you know, <laughs> why if, not? Yeah. Why not copy? Yeah. If somebody else has solved it, you know, copy, right. that's how I do UX. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to do UX, but I know how to copy UX. Um, I guess the borrow, this, borrow, 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 yeah. borrow, borrow. Well, you know, they say good artists borrow, great artists steal. <laughs> steal. Yeah. Um, I, th- I, th- I guess the skill there is is knowing the good UX from the bad UX. Right. Yeah. Um, which is a lot easier than originating it. Right, know? Right. yeah. Um, but this is, so we can't copy our operations. We have to figure it all out. Uh-huh. Uh, what I also think is cool, and um, uh, hearing that like you're the CTO, but you're you know going into the kitchen and sticking an iPad onto the oven and kind of testing th- these things out. Like you obviously, you guys don't have a big team, right? Like how, how big are you? Uh, it's three, so it's four developers now, yeah. but um, three developers largely built everything. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, yeah, that, that's like, that's, that's crazy. And I, I guess you get to do a lot of stuff that like you haven't done before, you know, like with even stuff like, you know, IT management, right? Like, you know, ma- ma- how do you like manage all these iPads? Like, you know, th- thinking about phones and data plans and stuff like that. Um, uh, like, do you, do you like that? I mean, because uh, like, you, you know, you, you obviously you're great at writing software and stuff like that, but this seems kind of like, at least from what I know of your experience, a little outside of your wheelhouse. 
yeah, it's way outside, certainly outside my wheelhouse, and I'd say also outside my comfort zone. Right. I mean, we, we've known each other for a while, and uh, you guys know me as a software guy because I am. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to be the chief software guy. Really. <laughs> um, I don't like dealing with, what's the old joke, how many computer programmers does it take to change a light bulb? None, that's a hardware problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I certainly, I certainly feel that I'm one of those, one of those com type of computer programmers. Um, and what I found very quickly after starting this, uh, starting with Maple was that the T in technology was going to be technology almost in the dictionary sense of the word, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the application of knowledge and, and engineering to solve problems. Yeah. Um, and it encompasses everything from the bikes to the technology, the hot bags to RFID readers to networking to, um, you know, just the layout of, of the distribution hubs uh, to putting iPads on walls. I mean, you name it. Mm -hmm. um, it it's certainly been more than software, uh, which is exciting but way outside my comfort zone. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to being able to hire people to do all those things <laughs> so I can get back to what you know I like to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Talking about the software, um, can you talk to us a little bit more about the technologies that you use? You talk, said you use Go for most of your API services. Uh, sounds like you, you have people who are doing Android development now, uh, iOS development now. Um, you're using Mongo in the back. And then what, about, what, what are some of the things that kind of connect those, those together a little bit more? Um, yeah, that's a really broad question. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start from the from the front to the back. Does okay. That yeah. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the front, as we as we mentioned earlier, it, there's some native and some web stuff. Obviously, there's the website and so on. Um, we we made a decision early on to invest heavily in in building single page apps, I guess is the, the term of art yeah. these days. Okay. Um, basically like thick clients, people used to call them, or fat clients. Um, so our back end is just a just a series of APIs, okay. uh, so, which means the front ends have to do all the rendering and, and so on uh, inside of the browser. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm incredibly pleased with that choice. I think it's been, it's, it's worked out really well. Uh, I think one of the things that makes software problematic as it grows is a lack of clean separation of concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and really a separation of concerns is almost the overriding goal in software. Um, because as things get big and increasingly complex, they, they tend to collapse under the weight of their own complexity. Um, so having these separations is, is really important. And a single page app just enforces that. There's, there's no reason that you couldn't have that separation in a more monolithic approach. But in practice, it's really hard. Right. And almost, yeah. you know, frankly, almost impossible to exercise that discipline every day. Um, so we use a combination of technologies for the web stuff. Uh, our our consumer-facing app is Facebook React and, mm -hmm. and Facebook Flux. Mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of the, I think, the obvious safe choice. It's almost like no one ever got fired for choosing IBM. Right. Which is funny because it's actually it's one of the newest on the scene. But yeah, like it's right. <laughs> I think that goes to show how yeah. fast things are moving yeah. in, the, in the world of front-end technology and JavaScript and you know even the build systems. It seems like almost every week there's a it's new a different tool. One, yeah. 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 Uh, so that's, it's hilarious to me that React is the safe choice. Yes, <laughs> yeah. You, you know. said that. It was like, oh, I mean, like, isn't, isn't the safe choice like what, prototype? I mean, isn't that IBM? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like Backbone. Spectaculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that also speaks, A, it speaks to A, how fast things are moving, but also B, how primitive and unsophisticated the tools are on the front end. Yeah. Um, you look at something like Backbone, uh, it's really tough to build large things in Backbone. Um, and but it's this stuff is really new, you know, and it's yeah. evolving really, really rapidly. And in some ways, they're kind of reinventing a lot of stuff that was uh, discovered 
a long time ago, uh, you know, in other, in other layers of the system when you're building UIs. So, um, and they're also dealing with all the quirks of the browsers, which is another really fast moving yeah. uh, thing. It's the browser is the substrate on which you build your, your client, mm -hmm. um, but it's almost like shifting sand. Yeah. You know, it's very hard to, to anticipate what that's going to look like from one year to the next. And things, things have certainly stabilized in the past couple of years, I think, more than they were, you know, a decade ago. Yeah. Since um, the maturity of IE, I think, was one of the yeah, big ones. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. IE, IE was kind of the sticking point, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. IE prevented, I think, a lot of innovation because it was, it was just so awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, we made a decision early on to not support IE 8 and below. Right, um, yeah. Which, believe it or not, is actually a non-negligible non amount of traffic. Particularly um, when you think about people in FIDA yeah. at their desks. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I see the user agents and I, yeah. you know, I kind of cringe. Right. Uh, yeah. But I'd What's rather. JP Morgan Chase. Yeah. Windows desktops. Probably XP. Yeah. Yeah. Running. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of XP. Yeah. Hey, that was a great operating system. <laughs> uh, as far as Windows goes, it's right. a pretty oh, yeah. good one. Um, so we went with React it, hilariously because it was a safe choice. Um, I, I, I like it. You know, it's, it's pretty good. Um, I, we also experimented with uh, something called Mithril, which is sure. a sort of minimalist uh, uh, framework for building JavaScript apps. Um, you know, very, very. I think it, it hues very closely to the original model of MVC, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I found that it produces like terser code. But there's you definitely don't have the training wheels that I feel you get with React and, and Flux. Uh, there's such a wealth of documentation around the Facebook tools. Uh, you've got the developer community around it. If mm -hmm. there's a question, when you're Googling, like, how do I do X? And Stack Overflow is always, like, the first kind of hits that you're hoping to see. Right. Um, if you put React in your query, you're going to have a ton of stuff. And if you put Mithril, you're getting nothing right. or very little. And you're, you, right, know, yeah. you have to go to, like, mailing lists, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a much tougher place to get answers. Yeah. Um, so that's that's certainly a drawback. But um, yeah, they've got their pros and cons. Uh, I think the, the key takeaway was building single-page apps is a good thing. Uh, keeping a clean separation of concerns from your front and back end was a good thing. Um, for the internal stuff, one thing I was really wary of was having a giant monolithic front end because I, I feel like you haven't really solved much of a problem there. Uh, even if you have your separation of concerns between the front and the back, I didn't want to end up with a, an application, a client application that was, you know, tens of thousands of lines of code. Right. And lines of code, you know, it's a metric we make fun of as programmers, but it's actually a pretty good proxy metric for complexity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really hard for a 500 line system to be hard to get your head around. Right. There's just, you yeah. can't pack that much into 500 lines, uh, regardless of the language that you're using. Um, likewise, a 100,000 line system or a million line system, no matter how well architected and no matter what programming language you use to express that system, it's going to be really hard for any person to understand. Virtually impossible. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get into like these really you know difficult kind of architectural conundrums about how to how to structure a system like that, and I just wanted to punt that whole problem. You know, I didn't want to deal with it. So what we did is we broke all everything down into really really small fine grained client systems. Um, so we have we have like a CRM sort of like a traditional system for looking up customers and orders in real time, seeing customer feedback and things like that. And and we have an admin tool for uh, editing admin users. Right, like I mm -hmm. want to look up all the users and systems, see where their roles are. There is a part of the admin for doing content management. You know, setting up menus, setting up menu items, entering all the ingredient data. Um, there are things like uh, there's more of a supply chain side. So you have all these 
screens. I mean, they're, they're essentially screens. And I think in a lot of cases, you'd just build an admin and these would just be sections of your admin. Mm -hmm. So we, we took an approach where each of these is a separate app, completely standalone, in a completely separate source code repository even. Mm. Um, and I, I have mixed feelings about whether to do like a mono repo or lots of little repos. Um, and I, I think it's, it's similar to the whole, do I want to build a separate, like thick client, just have a, a, a headless API. There's a discipline there that you don't, you don't need so much. Um, having the separate repositories, I think fosters uh, sort of a, a culture and an engineering approach of set more separation, mm -hmm. more separable things. And I told my team at the beginning that we should not get attached to anything. Mm -hmm. I want to treat each repository as something that we can delete and, and rebuild. Mm -hmm. And if at any point we feel like one of our client applications, so much effort went into it that if we were to delete it and rebuild it, we'd, you know, we'd be uh, stuck for two months working on it. And it's gotten too big, mm -hmm. you know. We made a mistake in terms in terms of breaking it down. Um, so all of these client apps are really they're disposable, which doesn't mean that we don't work really really hard to make the code good and, and we test it and we have you know obviously all the build infrastructure like linting and, and things like that uh, and a consistent style and style guides. We make sure that they're all really good, but at the same time, you know, it's important I think to foster that kind of feeling that. Uh, we're not building big giant monoliths you know we're building a lot of small things that interact mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's the client you know um there's a whole philosophy of doing that on the back end which is i think a separate separate topic how, how much of those um microservices uh different <laughs> applications um how much do they have like using a shared like backend database for it like is each one of those apps connecting to its own database and then each service calls each the other service like the ordering app can create orders, but it needs to tie into whatever the customer app is, and then it gets its product data from the, the app that has, has the product data. That's a great question. So um, they talk to different APIs. So there are different services that expose different facets of functionality mm -hmm. to different apps. Um, certainly, there's a huge gulf between the customer-facing consumer API and the API we use for internal systems. Mm -hmm. um, they're both equally, they, they pretty much have the same surface area in terms of just the number of APIs they expose and mm -hmm. endpoints, um, but they are totally different you know, processes and they're written in they're different parts of the code. Mm -hmm. um, everything is built on a single data store at the bottom, and that is just sort of a practical decision. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to break that system up and that's something that actually gives me a lot of stress and a lot of heartache. I look at this backend system and even though there are separate services, um, there is a monolithic approach to parts of it. Right. Yeah. You have this underlying data access library, you've got your business logic libraries and that is the sort of thing that tends to accrete functionality forever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like it exerts this gravitational pull and wants to pull everything into it. Yeah. You're constantly fighting that. Um, and that again takes a ton of discipline and that's not something that you're going to exhibit every day. Uh, every programmer has had that moment where you like you want to build something and you know that there's a way you could do it that would maybe lead to a better outcome in the long, long term, mm -hmm. but it'll take five or 10x the effort. Right. Uh, and that just doesn't seem worth it, mm -hmm. you know. So if you don't build your systems in a way that makes the good thing or the right thing easy, uh, it won't it won't get done. Mm -hmm. um, so that is something that I, I, I worry about a lot. Um, the, you know, the decision to use a single data source is just very much a pragmatic one. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we would have, with three developers, launched in the time that we did with as many apps as we had to build and as much functionality as we needed if I was using like five different data stores and using a message passing or right, yeah. webhooks or whatever it is to like, get things between them. That's enormously complicated. Um, it, I think, ultimately leads to better architected systems um, and more resilient ones. But only after you've, 
you've passed through that sort of ring of fire. You know, there's like yeah. so much infrastructure yeah, yeah. you have to build around that. And I think to just, you know, some people naively just wade into that morass of service-oriented stuff or what we're calling microservices these days. Or, it's so hot know, right now. So <laughs> well, my, microservices yeah. I hear are already passe. It's, uh, it's Pico services, oh. <laughs> which I don't know. Right what, over Nano? <laughs> yeah, nan Nano services? Yeah. <laughs> nano services were way too big. We realized that we were screwing. I, I don't know what a Pico service would look like. Maybe it's like, hello world. <laughs> it's like maybe 10 lines or fewer of code. Um, and there, you know, that, I. Sure, Pico service environment. That sounds sounds like a nightmare. But um, breaking things up, breaking things up into services is something we do to some extent. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, like there are there are geocoding services that we have that are separate. Um, there mm -hmm. are image processing services that we've written that are separate. Um, there are uh, things that sit between us and various third party providers which we've separated. Um, and that's not for any kind of. It, it's really just from like a code architecture standpoint. It doesn't really serve any other purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and there are situations where I think people paper over the, the trade-offs of, of building things in a microservice way. I'll give you one example. Um, we, have a, we have a library that constructs the routes for our delivery guys. Uh, and that's, it's not enormously complicated, but there is some like computational effort that goes into that. Um, it's essentially traveling salesmen over like a graph. Mm. Um, so even for small deliveries, you know, believe it or not, it takes it's in, it's on the order of microseconds, right? It's not nanoseconds like a computer normally. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm calculating something, I get it back in a nanosecond. This is something that can take uh, microseconds, or in some cases, maybe a millisecond, which is might as well be a lifetime, right? Right. So this routing algorithm isn't even the end product; it's actually an input to another algorithm. So we have an optimization system that tries to say, well, I've got I've got fifty, I've got a hundred orders. You know, they're all waiting to go out. How do I combine those? How do I how do I distribute those to twenty delivery guys, mm -hmm. like right now? And there are a lot of complicated factors. You know, like for one thing, I think of them all as like ticking time bombs, right? And they're all going to explode at the same point, <laughs> thirty minutes from lifetime. Yeah, right. So how do I ensure that all these bombs are defused? There's also a limited supply of food, and it's coming out at its own sort of unpredictable rate. Mm -hmm. uh, I also have delivery guys who are not all just waiting. It's not like I. Uh, it's not like I'm Amazon at my distribution center at four thirty in the morning, sending out the day's shipments, and I have fifteen FedEx trucks all lined up. I've got delivery guys who are out and they're doing stuff, and I, you know, I have to sort of guess when they're going to come back. So you have this, you have this really gross, uh, you know, optimization problem that doesn't match any sort of textbook description you've seen, and you know, it's like a combination of traveling salesmen and like a knapsack oh problem. Oh my goodness! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the, the the tricky thing about it is that that traveling salesman is just a mere input to this guy. Right, because every time he constructs a, a potential shipment, he wants to know how long that shipment's going to take. To know how long that shipment's going to take, well, you have to compute its optimal route, mm -hmm. and so it's computing routes for shipments that it then discards. Mm. Right, it's, it it computes in millions of shipments and tries them all out. So if I had an API like a service, a microservice that was like my routing service, which sounds on paper like the first thing you might do because it's a complicated piece of code, and you'd say, "Well, that's really something that I should make separate. I'll call this API. I'll pass it." The orders I need to make, and it'll give me the optimal route back, and it's like a black box. And you know, boy, wouldn't that be great? But now I have network latency, right? So if I'm computing millions of these routes as an input to another optimization problem, I can't spend milliseconds going over my local network to talk to the service. And you know, that would be in an ideal environment. But I'm in I'm in the cloud, right? So I'm running on somebody's cloud infrastructure. I'm on a VM. Uh, I have extremely unpredictable latencies between nodes. 
you know, I don't have like a dedicated private network. Uh, so, so using that as an input to a larger problem just wouldn't work. Um, and I, I feel like that's something that's often just kind of ignored. You know, if you, if you subdivide your system into really, really tiny services, and they're so small, um, you can introduce huge latencies and performance issues. Um, so again, it's a trade-off. You know, it's not to say that like that's the wrong approach. Um, I think as systems grow larger, it's almost inevitable that you have to do that because uh, one thing I think we've learned as an industry is that uh, software doesn't scale in the sense of size. You know, once software gets to a certain size, it becomes bad. Mm -hmm. um, so you do reach a point where it's inevitable to do things like that, but at the same time, you have to be really judicious in how you apply that technique. Yeah, that's really, really interesting stuff. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that was the front end. Uh, I guess I'll talk a little bit about Go because I feel like that's sort of like a controversial yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah you guys, um, did any any, any of the three engineers that you were on your team, did they have any Go experience ahead of time or is like it was all new to them? So, I, so I'm so i one of the three, by the way, so just, yeah. to, just to clarify. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I, I had some Go experience. Um, I, I'd written sort of trivial things at previous um, companies in Go, but it was really like Go point one, so it's very early. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a five-year-old language now, I, I think. Uh, and in terms of programming languages, that's like a baby. That's yeah. like a newborn. Um, I guess that's like toddler, right? It's like almost like your first birthday is five years in if you're a programming language. But it's a retired library in JavaScript world. <laughs> uh, I don't even, I can't even imagine what a five-year-old JavaScript would be. It'd be like prototype or script hack. Yeah, script hack would be. You're like embarrassed yeah. to even know, know what it's called. It. Yeah. And I, script dot accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's even, yeah, there's like uh, embarrassing web trends yeah. embedded in the name. Um, so it is this young language and nobody had experience with it. That, so the nature of Go made me not worry about that at all um, because Go is such a simple language. It does so little for you. Um, it's a language that you can pick up really quickly. If, you know, in contrast, I was selecting, say, Scala as a language, I wouldn't have even considered it um, solely for that reason, for the lack mm. of experience reason. Um, you know, I, don't think, I don't think I've mastered Go. I don't think anybody masters a language in, in a year or six months, no matter how simple. Right. Okay, I mean, with certain exceptions, right? I right. think uh, Turtle, the one where you move the turtle around, you could probably Logo master. Writer? Logo Writer? Logo Writer, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did add that, yeah. Um, although, you know, learning how to write complex software in that would take, you know, decades. Uh, so I don't, think, I don't think anyone truly masters a language quickly, um, but I think that there are languages clearly differ in how much mastery or how much expertise you need to be effective and not, mm -hmm. not make pretty serious errors in how you construct a system. Um, and how much time you waste on sort of accidental complexity, right? Like your, your build system isn't working or you have a bug and the, the compiler is complaining about something and, and you're not sure why. And how much time do you spend on that? And that stuff adds up, you know, it, it really does. Or, you know, how do, I, how do I express this in this really powerful type system in the right way? And if you're using a language like Scala, which is extremely expressive, you have many, many ways to express a problem. Um, I feel like if you haven't achieved mastery, like true fluency, you spend you know, how much, the question is how much of like your cognitive energy is being spent on the programming language and how much is being spent on the problem at hand, Right. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to be in a situation where my team or, or I were spending uh, you know, even 50% of our time thinking about how to apply the language to the problem. Mm -hmm. I just want to solve the problem. Right. Uh, and go sort of paradoxically, uh, because it does so little for you, uh, you spend more time on the problem. Mm -hmm. I find that when I write, when I write Go, I, I've heard people on the internet say that they enjoy writing Go, which I find puzzling, because I find it very tedious. 
Hmm. Uh, I don't really enjoy writing Go at all. Um, but and when I approach a problem in Go, I find that I tend to start at the top of a function and I write it right to the end and I'm done. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I made no decisions. You know, right. there are very few opportunities for cleverness mm -hmm. in Go. Uh, but what I do find is I'm extremely productive in it. Mm -hmm. Very, very productive. And I spend very little time thinking about how to bend the language to mm -hmm. my will. I spend very little time thinking, was there a better way to express this that's more idiomatic? Because the Go idioms uh, are quite simple and, and they, you learn them fast. You learn them very quickly. Clearly there are trade-offs that Go has made. You know, and like I said, there's a tedium there uh, when you write it. Um, and I can get into specifics if you guys are curious. I mean, if you, if you guys have written it, you probably have your own experience with it. Um, and I, I think that's maybe like the most political and controversial decision you make when you're starting a new company or building like right. a new system. It's like, what's the language? There's sort of an identity politics around programming languages, yeah. which I've always found interesting as yeah. an engineer. Because uh, I've never really felt that way myself. Like I never saw myself as like, I'm a Python developer or right. I'm a Ruby guy. Um, but you hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. People really identify. And then when they leave a language, they have to do this blog post, like they're breaking up with their girlfriend. <laughs> and they have to explain themselves. You know, like, well, I'm yeah. no longer with you. I'm with this other, right. you know, the new hot thing. Uh, and why? You know, that's yeah. sort of a bizarre thing. Um, yeah, who's that guy, that TJ guy who like left Node and... Yeah, there was a big... Yeah, he wrote like a whole blog post about it and was kind of like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you so can I, still use it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was an interesting post because, you know, he brought up some... Uh, really a lot of really good technical points mm -hmm. um, and I don't know so much that he couched it in that s sort of vein of like I'm I'm breaking up with you there was a sort of feel of it right. like that but when once like the internet and like Twitter the Twitterverse takes it over right, the yeah. community the it drama, gets yeah. oh the drama yeah, yeah. The, the drama queens yeah. <laughs> drama kings I guess you know whatever yeah. um, that once Hacker News gets a hold of it it's like a feeding frenzy yeah. right. and everybody comes out and it, it's hilarious there'll be, a, there'll be a blog post about Node mm -hmm. and how a guy's moving to Go and the whole discussion is people talking about D and Rust right. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have this problem if you went to, you know and it, it's just really strange to me because, uh, like, to take Rust as an example, um, it doesn't fill the same spaces uh, that Go does at all. Mm -hmm. I don't really see. I see them as incredibly complementary languages, not not competing languages. Right. Uh, but there's absolutely this sort of like culture, like language competition. There's like a tendency to treat it like a sports team you grew up with and you know. Absolutely. And like right. you move cities and you're like, well, you know. I really still like this team, that team, but I, I can't get to the games as much, and I gotta go see it, and it's just more convenient because of these reasons for kind of like this. And then there's just that affection for it, and then you yeah. want, then you want to see it succeed. You want to see more people using it. Yeah. So I, I definitely think like the the heart of it is this tribalism. Yeah. That mm -hmm. is just human nature. Right. Um, there is there is you know in all fairness a, a sort of zero sum game aspect to this, which is that. A language is going to fail if it doesn't get enough mindshare, mm -hmm. no matter how good it is. And if you are a programmer who sees a language that you think is better, like just objectively does a better job of, of helping you write software than some other language, and it's not getting mindshare, uh, that must be very frustrating. Right. Uh, and even more frustrating if you've invested time in it. So there is an extent, uh, there is sort of like almost like a placing a bet nature to, to investing your time in mastering a programming language. Yeah. And if you pick the wrong, you, know, you bet on the wrong horse, you'll feel like you've wasted some, some time. Yeah. Um, 
that's again just I guess the nature of the beast. Uh, I think uh, last time I uh, asked you about Go and stuff, you said uh, you said something to the effect of like I have to reinvent the wheel, but I love that shit. So like it's a lot of fun. Uh, is when did you mean like um, in, in terms of like frameworks? Like you have to kind of roll a lot of your own stuff, or like I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Um, so for frameworks, yeah, I've never been a big fan of frameworks. Um, I, I guess I shouldn't be say something so strong. Uh, right. Frameworks are certainly good sometimes. Uh, they have, again, trade. it's all about trade-offs, yeah. right? Frameworks are, by definition, opinionated and restrictive. Mm. Um, so I think it depends on what you're trying to build. One thing I like about Go is that it is, the culture of Go eschews frameworks, and there just aren't very many. Mm. Uh, and it's not really idiomatic to use like these large opinionated frameworks in Go. It's not how their standard library is developed. Mm. They very much have a library culture. So it's, you know, here are some tools, and you can, you know, sort of cobble them together into right. a, a system, into like a server. Uh, what that means is is um, you have to make a lot of decisions for yourself, and that's one of the things frameworks are great for. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't need to think about how I'm going to do authentication or how I'm going to structure my 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 code. You know, I know where to put my request handlers, whatever they end up being called. Maybe they're called controllers. Maybe they're maybe I just define a class and I inherit from something, and, mm -hmm. and that's that could be really great. Um, you know, there there are things like uh, uh, Drop Wizard for Java, which is great at that. Right, it it, it collects all these really best of breed libraries, like Jersey and JaxRS, and then if I want to build a RESTful server in that, it's, it's like astonishingly smooth and easy. Mm -hmm. um, the problem, of course, comes when you want to paint outside the lines. Right. Get uh, off the rails, like if you're on Ruby on Rails. That's yeah. number two. <laughs> we should be keeping the pun count. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we'll put a little ding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you'll edit that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so that's one part, like there's, there's just not a lot of frameworks, and I've never been just for me personally, I guess maybe it's just a style thing. I, I like to not use them because I find that they're often solving problems that are not that hard mm -hmm. for me to solve. And the really hard problems, um, I feel like frameworks make the easy things easy and the hard things harder than they need to be. Right. Uh, the easy things are already easy. I don't need, I don't need that solved. Um, there is also, so that's, I guess, the first half of it. The second half is that Go is a young language, so there, there are definitely a lot of missing libraries. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it's almost like it's like vacation to be able to write an implementation of like a checksum algorithm mm -hmm. that doesn't exist in Go yet. You know, that's just fun. Yeah, uh, it's really easy to do because you go to Wikipedia, or you 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 pull out the art of computer programming off your bookshelf and you dust it off and you you implement something, and it's a joy because for one thing, when you write your tests for it, it's like the best bunch of unit tests you're ever going to write. Uh, these are these aren't it's not business logic. Right, writing tests for business logic is. Nobody enjoys that mm -hmm. because the business logic is constantly changing. You know, you're in this you're in this rapidly evolving situation. Your tests are, are broken not because your code is broken, but because the rules changed on you. Right. Whereas, you know, if you're if you're writing an algorithm that's if you're implementing a textbook algorithm, correctness is an immutable property of it. Right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change over time. So you write your tests and you feel really good about yourself afterwards. <laughs> um, so I don't I don't really mind that. If it were something enormously complex that's you know beyond my abilities. Um, then, then you know, I'd be foolish to try to undertake it. And there's certainly things. There's certainly plenty of examples like that. And um, it, it, there, there are things that are like niches for Go where I wouldn't even begin to attempt to to use it. Mm -hmm. So let's say I had a big linear algebra problem. You know, I'm not going to write a linear algebra library in Go for a couple of reasons. One, it would not. It would be. It would wouldn't be performant. Yeah, Go doesn't lend itself to that sort of problem. Um, which again is, I think, one of the misguided criticisms of Go. People often try to use it for things for which it's just not suited. Right. Um, 
you know, what would I, I would, I would use, I'd probably use Python, honestly. Yeah. If I if had a big complex machine learning problem, I wouldn't attempt to do it and go. I'd be reinventing so many wheels. And frankly, wheels I'm not, I'm not suited, or I'm not equipped to right. do. You know, that's outside of my realm of expertise. Uh, and you're going to have bugs in there. Right. Because you know, it's <laughs> very complex. Uh, but, uh, you know, I will say that's a fun part of Go. You know, it's like in some, in some senses, it's like virgin territory. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is available only in the early stages of a programming language. You know, good luck finding a non-trivial Python library that doesn't exist or a non-trivial Java library in particular. You know, Java is everything. Yeah. yeah. And, you, you know, you, you can't possibly write a better string processing library in Java than what's available. You can't possibly write a better uh, collections library than what's available in Java. Um, there's so many things you just could never improve upon what's out there, the state of the art. Uh, that's not the case in Go. And I think there, there are a couple of reasons for that in Go. One, it's lack of generics makes writing generic libraries mm. That's actually one of the biggest criticisms, right? That is one of the biggest yeah. criticisms, yeah. What, what is it generically for the... So the idea, the idea is that... Um, so Go has a, a static type system, unlike yeah. Python, yeah. Um, which means if I have a function... I'll give you the most basic example. Let's say I want to write a function that takes the maximum of... that gives me the maximum of two numbers mm-hmm. and gives that back to me. Well, you know, how do I write that? If I'm in, a, if I'm in Lisp or Python, um, it's very easy to write. I get polymor- I, I, have a, I have a parametrically polymorphic function for free, essentially. I say my function accepts two parameters. I'm going to call them A and B. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say if A is greater than B, return A. Otherwise, return B. Mm-hmm. And I'm done. Right. And I, I just wrote a generic algorithm. And boy, that was easy, right? I didn't have to really think about it. In Go, you'd say, well, okay, I have A and B, but what are they? Well, I guess they're floats. They're 64-bit floating, floating point numbers. So I have to actually tell Go. I have to tell the compiler, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, A and B, make sure they're 64-bit floats because if they're not float 64s, you know, don't compile. And then what's my result? It's a 64-bit float. Mm-hmm. Well, I need to know what's bigger. In, I need to uh, compare integers all the time. Which of these two integers is larger? Well, in Go, there's no way to express that. It's simply impossible. I can't write a max function. I shouldn't say that. There's no practical way to do it. You could do it because it has a runtime reflection library. Mm-hmm. So Go lets you say... Um, accept two, two values of any type. Who knows what type they are? And then at runtime, like while the program is operating, inspect them and say, well, are they integers? Then I'll do something. Are they floats? I'll do something else. Are they complex numbers? Well, I'll do something else with those. Did I get a float and a complex? Or did I get a complex and a float in that order? Mm-hmm. You know, you have, to, you have all, these, all these problems. And that actually is a very old problem in computer science, mm-hmm. uh, the numeric type hierarchy. No one's really solved it. There is no real good solution to it. Uh, like how do I deal with, how do I have a, a multi-method dispatch across all, all sorts of numeric types? Uh, probably the closest anybody's come is Haskell, which has like a very sophisticated type system. Um, so in Go, that's, you can imagine, that's quite tedious. Like what would I do? I have to write a function called max, and then I write another function called max int. Mm-hmm. And another one called max float 32, because they have 32-bit floats as well as 64-bit. And what if, what if I'm dealing with those? Mm-hmm. Um, for the C programmers out there, that'd be like float and double. Uh, so that's a lack of generics. There's no ability to say, I want to pass you something of many different types. Uh, and a more powerful type system lets you express a lot of things. So at the most basic level, I could say, well, uh, I want you to let this max function take two values A and B, and they have to be of the same type. And the value I'm going to return will be of the same type of those. Mm-hmm. So what you'd sort of have is like a type variable. So the type's like a stand-in, and it gets filled in when the program's compiled. Mm-hmm. And the program can make certain promises to you. For example, uh, it won't compile if you call max with two different types. 
because how would it how would it know what to do? Mm -hmm. It won't compile if uh, saying a greater than sign b doesn't make sense. So if I passed it, for example, to to uh, you know to to database handles, it doesn't know how to say this is greater numerically greater. So it would just not compile. Mm -hmm. So that's I think at the most basic level how you get type polymorphism in a function. Um, so imagine that it's not a max because that's a really silly example because no one's really gonna gonna be upset that they have to write a max function more than one time. Uh, let's say I'm writing a, a red black tree, which is a very difficult data structure to write correctly. Uh, I think it's so difficult in fact that they recently found a bug in oh. yeah like in a red black tree implementation that had been in use for 12 years. Oh wow. Yeah, and and was like hundreds of computer scientists have looked at it and pretty much verified that it was right. Um, it's really hard to do correctly. The thing about a collection is I usually put lots of different things in a collections, right? Like I might have a red-black tree that, that takes integers or puts strings, uh, or maybe something much more complex, like a big complex data structure that I want to sort into a tree and then do lookups on. Well, I don't want to have to repeat that code over and over. Mm -hmm. You know, repeating max is one thing. Repeating my red-black tree is completely out of the question. Just copy-pasting this giant library with different type signatures. So Go doesn't do a very good job of that. Um, and that, I think, is one of the, the big criticisms mm -hmm. of that lack of generics. Now, there are workarounds. Um, Go has this type called interface, interface curly bracket, which is essentially, you know, people have compared it to void star and C. It's basically like no type. Um, and you can, you can do type checks on it at runtime. Uh, Go also has this concept of interfaces, which is how they have a generic sort. So the way you do sorting in Go is, is very strange. And I think most people who see it for the first time are like, boy, that's, that's a really weird way to do sorting. You tell Go, uh, I have a collection. And my collection is going to implement an interface with three functions. It's, you can ask how long it is. You can um, ask whether the, the ith or the jth element are less than, is, is element i less than element j? Mm. And you can tell it, take i, I element i and element j and swap them. Mm. And if you implement those three functions, which have no indicator of type at all, right? There's no indication what's in my collection. They could be strings, they could be integers, they could be uh, customer records, right? Uh, if you implement those three things, Go's sorting library could sort for you. Because if you think about it, those are the only three operations sorting algorithms need, like a quick sort or, mm -hmm. or a merge sort. Um, so it, but it's inverted, right? It's almost like the backwards way of doing it. Uh, in most languages, you would say, I have an arbitrary collection of elements, and those elements are comparable. Like that would be sort of the Java approach, or like even like the Haskell approach. You'd say like my type satisfies some requirement, which is that you can compare them, and you can swap them, right? And any type can sort of fill that need. Uh, Go does it almost like in an inside-out way, hmm. where your whole collection as a unit implements these, these three basic operations. Hmm. And that, believe it or not, lends itself to a lot of different uses. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of situations where that works. There are some problems with it. One is that uh, it doesn't necessarily perform well because it involves dynamic dispatch. Uh, and if you're coming from the Python world or the Ruby world, it, that almost seems, it sounds like a silly concern because every single thing you do in Python is, is dynamic dispatch. Mm -hmm. um, but the people who are complaining about Go tend to be more of like the C++ crowd, the, the D, the Rust crowd. These are people who care a lot about performance and control over memory, space, and stuff like that. I think Go in general has been much more popular among the dynamic, you know, programming language uh, you know, aficionados or like adherents mm -hmm. to that than, than people who are coming from like already statically typed languages. They right. see it as a big step backwards. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it's often like kind of in between, like people can go from, people often go from 
Um, Ding. Di- <laughs> uh, the dynamically typed language too. I mean, like in your career, have you spent most of your programming in like a static or di- dynamically typed language? It's 50-50. 50? Okay. Um, okay. Like the first few years of my career were almost entirely C and C++. Right. Um, and then I got into, I got really into Perl. And, you know, coming from C, Perl was the greatest thing since yeah. sliced bread. <laughs> I was so in love that I didn't have to do type signatures and that I could, uh, I didn't have to do templates in order to get anything generic. My compile times were zero. You know? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was working on C++ projects with, you know, 20-minute compile times, which is not fun. You know, mm-hmm. you're trying to fix a bug, you're trying to debug something, you're inserting yeah. print statements. And even an incremental compile is taking minutes. That's just, it's a really, really right, painful yeah. way to develop. Um, so it's been 50-50 for me. Um, you know, I think the static versus dynamic typing, uh, I don't want to call it a debate because I don't really think there is much of a debate. Um, well, there is, I guess. Uh, there's a huge trade-off to consider there. Yeah. Right? An enormous trade-off. And that maybe is one of the most obvious ones in programming languages. What's interesting to me about Go is I feel like the authors of Go understand or admit, maybe more than a lot of people are willing to, that language features aren't universally good or bad. They come with these trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some that are really clear, like having uh, having types. And I don't mean dynamic or static typing, just having types. Yeah. This is, a, this is a clear good. You know, there's almost no reason not to have that in a language, and the drawbacks are virtually non-existent. And that's essentially when we progress from like assembly language, right? right we yeah. have like structured programming. Um, the ability to have, you know, loops and iteration, like the obvious things are universally good. Then you get into more recent things like uh, automatic memory management. You know, this is something that still t- today a lot of people don't want to use. Uh, certainly, like anytime you bring it up, the embedded systems programmer pops out of the woodwork and is like, <laughs> yeah. I can't use, just so you know, I can't use a garbage collector. Like he has to insert yeah. himself in every conversation. And that's true. You know, there are tons of systems where garbage collection is inappropriate. Uh, real-time systems, embedded systems, whatever, um, video games. But those account for a very small amount of programming in the world. Automatic memory management is one of these things that is almost always the right choice. You know, <laughs> almost always. Like if you're if you are not using that, you're probably doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rust is a very interesting example of a language that doesn't uh, do garbage collection. They have they have a very complex ownership model, and their argument is that that's what you need to build a performant web browser, which is a big you know complicated piece of software, and uh, you know nobody wants a slow web browser. And they may they may be absolutely right about that. But again, like writing writing web browsers is is not what most people do. Yeah, I mean that, that's why I think like the C C plus plus still is popular after all these absolutely. years. Like in finance, where those those microseconds mm-hmm. mean mean thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and mm-hmm. if they can get the, that those couple of microseconds faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, though interestingly, I hear they're they're using languages like ML and, and Haskell more and more. Really? Often. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Haskell surprises me because I with the lazy evaluation, I don't know how you how you make like performance. Yeah. Sort of guarantees, but um, so but Haskell's a great. That's a good segue. You know, lazy evaluation. You know, this is something that's obviously powerful sometimes to solve some problems. Do I want my whole language to lazily evaluate by default? Well, that's that's a that's a big trade off that you're making. Um, or generics. You know, generics is probably the most controversial. Uh, I would argue that generics do come with a cost. They really, really do, and mm-hmm. it's not just compile times. Um, you know the the complexity of the implementation has has an effect. You know I so we do a lot of Swift also at mm-hmm. Maple, um, obviously for our iOS stuff. Not obviously we could have used Objective C. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it's it's been it's had its ups and downs. The compilation times are long. 
there are occasionally hiccups in the compiler where it can't, we'll express something in the type system that leads to some sort of exponential, you know, uh, uh, unification or, or type inferencing. I really don't know what's going on, right? Uh, but which is another problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, the little bit that I've been doing with it, mm -hmm. like things like um, things that worked in one version, you're upgrading, and they, it's changing a lot too. Even the language itself yeah. is changing a lot very that, quickly. That has bitten us so yeah. many times. Yeah, yeah. Um, not to say that generics and stability of the language are connected. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think it gets to an overall philosophy of pragmatism versus idealism yeah. in, in your programming language design. Uh, I think that the, the, just a simple way to say it is that every time you add another feature to your language, it comes with some cost. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the cognitive load on the programmer, whether it's how hard it is or easy it is for me to read somebody else's code. Um, you know, take, take macros, for example. And not like C macros, but like hygienic macros. Um, which, so I, I've done a lot of Lisp, but that's one of my favorite languages to write. Um, and it has a very powerful macro system, or co common Lisp does, not, not all Lisps. Uh, which basically means you can create your own language constructs, you know, in the sense that you have an if statement or a for statement uh, in, in, your, in your language. Lisp and, and languages with powerful macro systems let you extend that. So it's almost like extending the syntax of the language. You create wow. your own special forms. Uh, well, when you're writing code, like, boy, is that fun. Oh. It is the best. It's really, really great. Um, when you're reading somebody else's code, it's not as much fun. Mm. Uh, and that somebody else could be you a month later. <laughs> yeah. And I've certainly found that, you know, with um, with Lisp and more recently Clojure, which I, I, I write just like in my spare time because it's so much fun. Uh, I often have trouble reading my home Clojure code, uh, a, you know, a little bit later mm. um, because it's so expressive hmm. and you can do, you can really do things with it. Uh, not so much, not as much as Lisp. You know, closure I think is a, a little bit more practical in that in that respect. Uh, but I've looked at Scala code that to me is just like it's gibberish. It's really yeah, it's really yeah. really difficult. Like, yeah, and, and, and like um, because it, it called like the the way it calls back to other other things, it's, it's it's just um. Yeah, like when I see in your code you have it like the the angle bracket angle bracket tilde dot operator. You know <laughs> that's great, but how do I Google that? You know how do I, how do I grep and yeah. find the definition of that thing? Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a practical aspect to it. Uh, I, one one last detail I give about Go that I think speaks to their pragmatism. There is there isn't a single identifier in Go that you can't look at and know instantly know where it's from. Like that's not something that the language even supports. And uh, so for example, if I import a package like a foreign package, a foreign piece of code, I'm not allowed to import those names into my namespace. It's just simply not expressible in the language. I always have to prefix it with the name of that package. Mm. Um, Are you using a particular um, Go library package manager? Yeah, we use um, uh, GoDeps. Okay. GoDeps, yeah. Because uh, like, one of the, one of the fun things about Go is there's so many puns on Go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. Go get. Is yeah, Go get is a good yeah. And Go, go routines yeah, instead yeah. of co routines. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they love that. Yeah. yeah. Their mascot so is like Gopher. Yeah, it's uh, so good. It's so good. Uh, <laughs> that is good. Um, but you know, bottom line, I think it's an incredibly pragmatic language, and it's it's worked out for us. Yeah. Uh, is it fun to write though? No, I would never. I'd never be one of those people. I will say this: it is a lot less painful to read other people's code because it all looks the same. Right, and right. It's very simple. There's just not much going on. And it almost does it like enforce kind of like a de facto style, I guess. Yeah, it does. So yeah. they've got that Go Funked thing, Go okay. Format, which is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, every language should adopt that now. Yeah. Well, Adam um, tried to do you know Pyfunked. Yeah. 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 I remember yeah. that. So I mean, Python, you know. Meaningful white space, I think, uh, I think it's a mistake, you know, and I love Python. 
but meaningful white space is not practical, mm-hmm. right? There are engineering issues with it. It makes code generation much harder yeah. than it needs to be. It means like my editor can't auto format the code without changing potentially changing semantics, mm-hmm. uh, and I can't do something like like go fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, again, you know, and and anybody who's tried to embed like using Swig like code and another piece of code who's dealt with meaningful white space, you know, will tell you uh, it's not worth the trade off, right? Mm-hmm. It's like bad. It's a bad engineering trade off. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and uh, but if it's not fun to code in, it's probably fun to deploy, though, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, everybody knows the yeah. deployment story for Go is fantastic. Yeah. Certainly, after coming from a Python shop where deployment is awful, right. you know, the Python's deployment story is no fun. Uh, Go is great. You know, you build these binaries and you just push it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're statically compiled. They don't depend on anything. Right. That's not quite true. Um, I think on Linux, Go does dynamic relink to uh, Glibc. Okay. Yeah, just for like yeah, like something really specific, like hostname lookups. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Huh. they didn't want to reimplement that in the runtime, I guess. Uh, but that's not noticeable, right? Yeah. Uh, you, it, it is noticeable in the sense that if you build on on one Linux and deploy to another, it, it might not work. Right. It's like a very different flavor hmm. of Linux. But uh, hmm. for the most part, the deployment story is is a joy, uh, and it compiles fast. And and I also think that the static typing is is just a no brainer. You know, when a system gets large. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think building, and this is a controversial statement, but I don't think building large systems in a dynamically typed language just makes sense from an engineering standpoint. Uh, it's it's untenable at some point. It does, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for small programs, it's totally fine. And small is going to, you know, how everybody defines small is going to vary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's, there is this, you know, once you're in the thousands of lines, maybe the tens of thousands, it, it does become untenable. Are you, um, are you putting those Go binaries on... The app servers and then fronting it with anything? Are you just putting it out to the world? Yeah. Um, like infrastructure are, yeah, infrastructure oh yeah, great, great yeah. question. Yeah, so we run we run Nginx in front of everything and yeah. HA, HA proxy in front of that. Oh wow, okay. Um, and and it's in the works to put HA proxy in front of the between Nginx and the like another layer of load balancing. Okay. Mainly because Nginx doesn't do a great job of, of load balancing. It's time slicing, right? I think it's just it's, yeah, yeah. I'm not even sure what the yeah. algorithm is, and I think Nginx Plus, the commercial version, is much better at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the like the free version, and you know maybe I should just pay for it because it's not that expensive. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty cheap for what it yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, but the like the free version, we had an issue where one of our nodes just became unresponsive. Uh, like the network, I think the network interface on that physical computer just died, mm. and Nginx took you know 20 minutes to decide to stop routing requests to it, wow. which was you know obviously outrageous and. Uh, and we run two two machines, so that was fifty percent. And it's one of the nice things about a single page app is you don't notice that as much. Yeah. Right. You're clicking around and like yeah. everything seems to be working, but things just take a little longer. Yeah, uh, which I guess is a, can be a pro and a con. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we put Nginx in front. There's no reason why we couldn't put just go on the internet. Um, but Nginx does a lot of really nice things, like uh, we terminate SSL there. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, uh, you know things. It's just it, Nginx does so much. I wouldn't want to have to do all of that and go. Yeah. Um, you know, handle it. Also, routes different paths, like tons of different things, like static, this, that, and the other. So, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, I'm just really, really comfortable with Nginx. Yeah, I think Nginx Plus uh, does do a lot of. It, w- it would have solved that problem with the case of the unresponsive. Node. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard yeah, that it does a good job of load balancing. It does. Yeah. yeah. Um, the couple times that I've used it, it, it does. Yeah, it works pretty well. Yeah. Or if you want vendor lock-in, you could go to ELBs or oh, yeah. Yeah. Node Balancer. Like uh, I think Linode has Node Balancers. Yeah, we, we actually they, use those, but they're just yeah. HA proxy. Oh, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm almost yeah. certain they're software yeah. HA proxy. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
So you, you guys use Linode then for your... Yeah, we're entirely hosted on Linode. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I like Linode because it's so simple, and I yeah. guess that's yeah. sort of a theme of everything we're building. Yeah. Um, I feel like the move to Amazon feels inevitable. Right. I'm not sure why. <laughs> I, mean, I, can't, I can't express like, like precisely why that would be a good move. Right. Uh, it just feels like... Scale, man. Come on, let's scale. Scale, let's scale. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's sort of unfair. I feel like you're not yeah. a member of the big boy club if you're on Linode. It's like something right. where people host their personal websites. Or, like, yeah. or DigitalOcean. Yeah, the same thing. Yeah, or DigitalOcean. Like, yeah. Kind of graduate from those services. Yeah, and I'm not sure that's a fair characterization. No. Because, uh, again, they I don't... They all have APIs. They all have yeah. kind of like yeah. very basic orchestration stuff you can do, but... Yeah, and I'm. I also I would be really wary of adopting too many of the the AWS tools. Yeah, you know you are. I mean, you are. Getting, yeah. yeah, you are getting locked in, yeah. and that's yeah. you know that's that's not that's not something to ignore. No, yeah. Yeah. I always feel bad for the designer that has to design all those little icons for all the new services. How do they come up with new icons? <laughs> they just yeah. stack blocks in different ways. It seems. Yeah. Like at this point, <laughs> I mean, my my eyes just glaze over. When I'm there. What's uh, the name of the thing that I need this time? Yeah, 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 yeah it exactly. doesn't two three. You hit that services drop down. Yeah. It's just like whoa. Yeah. <laughs> So I mean, we we do use AWS for some of the obvious things like uh, S3 Glacier for backups and so okay. on. Okay. Yeah, yeah. uh, and and it does annoy me having to use two consoles. So maybe it would, you know. Do do you? So it sounds like you also collect a ton of data, and you're you're probably taking from these services and putting it into your your huge Mongo back. And are you are you like pruning data out of there and like um, putting it in some store for some data warehouse later for later use, or it's just all living there for now in this early stage, and you have some plan to do something with it later. So a lot of the data we collect is probably like the most voluminous data, or like data that takes up the most, just like disk is uh, like all the all the GPS data. Yeah, that we collect yeah. Um, and and what we do is we process that into a much smaller form on a like nightly. Uh, so that that isn't something that I anticipate being like a big issue. Okay. The other thing is, you know, we're just getting started. So yeah. you know, our data set is you know however many gigs. We're not even up to a terabyte yet. Yeah. Uh, once it gets to that range. Um, and I'm surprised you haven't brought up Mongo because talk about a controversial piece yeah, of technology. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Go is pretty well regarded, but boy, Mongo's not. Um, <laughs> so the, I, you know, I certainly anticipate a point where uh, we're going to have to do something, whether that's uh, you know having multiple data stores, which I think is the most the most uh, sensible thing to do, um, and then some of that data might not go into Mongo; it might go into something that's designed to to you know be more efficient with mm, right, large yeah. data sets. Yeah. You, um, you, you said the word nightly that made me think like you guys like you said before you do have like off hours do you find that you're doing a lot of like background and like processing stuff like kind of at night like an overnight and then during the day it's mostly just like you know uh, the actual like traffic of the website and the operations or yeah no we definitely do it's funny it's it's it feels more like a business that you might have heard about in you know like the 80s like back when businesses were first being automated by computers right. and they had a very they had a very clear day night cycle yeah like if you read about like oracle uh like the early days of like uh like how relational databases were applied in business automation they even had um i remember i remember in an early version of oracle there was like a tuning manual that came with it and they actually talked about tuning the database with different parameters at, during the night and during the day oh my mm -hmm. goodness yeah this was actually something that was done yeah so at night you'd expand for example you'd expand your uh, your rollback segment and that's basically so that you can um, have a really long-running transaction that touches a lot of data. Uh, because at night, you might do these big data warehousing things. Yeah. And during the day, you have lots of little transactions. So mm -hmm. they don't need a lot of rollback, but they need you know, some other resource. Right. Um, so that was something that was like a reality in the old days, of like the day-night cycle. And we, you know, weirdly enough, kind of have that, which is not usual on the internet. You know, Facebook never goes to sleep. Right. Google yeah. never goes to sleep. Um, but we do. We basically go to sleep. Mm -hmm. I would say that it's less about, you know, 
doing a lot of number crunching at night, more about like I can totally mess with things at night. Right. Like, <laughs> not really, yeah, not that, really yeah, worry. Yeah, yeah. So I can yeah. like break infrastructure and things like that. <laughs> uh, Just gotta fix it by 11 the next yeah, day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like people, people can sign up and, and futz around with their private data, like yeah. their profile, but nobody does because that would be a weird thing to do. Right. Um, so like going down for maintenance when we're not selling food is, is not nearly as bad as it would be for like Amazon, right. which sells around the clock, yep. you know, yeah. yeah. So that's a it's a luxury. I'll mm -hmm. say that like yeah, it's a, totally. it's a, it's really nice being able to do worry free deployments uh, at certain times of day. Awesome. Yeah, I think um, I think we're probably about right about time here. Yeah. So thank you very much, Dan, yeah, for coming. So much for yeah, coming. this is really, oh, it's, really great. It's my pleasure. I feel like I talked way too much about some things we didn't get to talk about. Uh, we'll have some you other back. Things. Okay. I'd love oh, to yeah, have you back. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's see how popular this episode is. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe it'll be your worst episode of all time. No, I, I doubt that. Yeah. I doubt that. Yeah. We're gonna, yeah. Well, we got some good uh, SEO stuff. We've got like Maple, you know. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. That's we're key. All the traffic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Guys, that's Maple.com. We're not the top result. You're not. No, because there's the maple math package, which has been around for, for uh, 30 years. It's maple syrup. Yeah, I think maple syrup. We beat maple syrup. I think. Oh, no. Yeah. Poor Canada. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you guys used to be tri maple, right? Yeah, yeah. We yeah. bought we bought maple uh, finally. Right. That's the, yeah. I remember someone said the big joke is like the first round of funding you get, you buy the dot com. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, it actually coincided. We bought our domain name after a Series A. So mm -hmm. I guess that, that actually did. Yeah, that's that, that's funny. that checks out. Yeah, because I think the other one uh, was like Docker. They had Docker.io forever. And then they raised like a you know a zillion. And dollars. they became Docker.com. Docker.com. Great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Again soon. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This was fun.